If you take your Bibles and turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning we are coming to the end of the body of this letter that Peter wrote to Christians and churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Christians who were just beginning to experience suffering for their faith in Jesus. We will have at least one more Sunday in 1 Peter. This won't be the last before moving on. As we saw last week, Peter called these Asian Christians and us to spiritual alertness in light of the spiritual enemy that we have. Beyond the alert, Peter said. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So be alert. And yet, as we also saw last week, as menacing as our enemy is, God is greater. And he has given us the ability to resist our enemy, firm in our faith. For as we saw last week, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. God gives us that ability to resist our enemy, the devil, through faith in him, through faith in God, and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We resist the devil with the truth that we are accepted in Christ. I love what commentator J.N.D. Kelly said of this, the main letter ends, this letter of Peter ends with the solemn assurance that we have one on our side who is more than a match for our worst adversary. So what we see in our text this morning is God's greatness, his power, his rule over all, and therefore our confidence, our hope is great in him. It's been said that the whole of the letter of 1 Peter can be perfectly summarized in the two verses we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. When you're going about the job of picking out a movie or a television program you want to watch and you want to know what it's about, you read the plot summary, which gives you in just a sentence or two the basic idea of what happens in the movie without giving any spoilers. And that's what we have here in these two verses, the plot summary for all of 1 Peter. As Peter closes the main part of the letter, he summarizes pretty much all that he has been trying to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Let me read it for us together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you possess all authority, all power. When we come to you and we pray, we're not praying to someone who can't hear us. We're not praying to someone who can't act. We're not praying to someone whose motives are questionable. But rather we are praying to someone who hears who is good, and who has the power to act for our benefit. Thank you, Father God, for being such a God. Thank you. You are worthy of praise. And I pray that this morning, as a result of hearing your great promises toward us, we would 
respond in praise and adoration for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see this morning as we look at these at the plot summary of 1 Peter uh, in verses 10 and 11, we're going to see four reasons for gospel hope in the midst of our suffering. Four reasons for gospel hope in the midst of our suffering. As we've seen in this study of 1 Peter, this is gospel hope for troubled times. Peter's preparing these Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Christians scattered about in churches throughout that region to be ready. And he's, he's, he's equipping them with the truth they need to persevere in the midst of difficult times. And, the, and what he's equipping them with is gospel hope throughout this letter. So we're going to look at four reasons, again, summarizing the whole letter, four reasons for gospel hope in the midst of our suffering. The first of all, our suffering is for a little while. We should get an amen on that one. It's just for a little while. It's not much longer now. Just a little while. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect you. Praise God for that truth. After we've suffered for a little while, God is going to perfect us. But before the final perfecting comes, we experience suffering. This should not surprise us. The Bible teaches us that all who believe in Jesus and follow him will experience suffering in this life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our brother, Elder Jeff, in his uh, comments and prayers this morning, already alluded to Jesus' words that said, In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And Peter shared with us that we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer for being a Christian. After all, we're we're not at home in this world. We're pilgrims. We are strangers. We're aliens. We're considered outsiders in this world. And if they mistreated our Savior while he was in this world, we would expect that they would mistreat us as well. We're certainly not better than the Lord Jesus. So that is why Peter said in chapter 4 and verse 12 of 1 Peter... Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be shocked. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Suffering for the believer in this world is not strange. It's to be expected. It goes with the territory. Now our suffering may be great or it may be relatively small compared to how others Are suffering, but we will all suffer at some level. Living in a fallen world means suffering. And certainly, living as redeemed people, the people of God, in a fallen world is going to mean sometimes we suffer for Jesus, for Jesus' sake. People may misunderstand us, unbelievers don't understand us. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. They may reject us because of our faith. You may experience rejection by family and friends or co-workers. They may make fun of you and ridicule you or view you with suspicion or question your motives. They may think you're dumb. They may call you blind. 
They may think you're part of the problem of this world. They may pass you over for a promotion or not include you in that social event outside of work. They may even seek to have you fired for your beliefs. Others may experience suffering in the home as they live with unbelievers who don't understand them and are frustrated with them. We may experience suffering at school when we take a position that is unpopular or we write an essay that doesn't quite line up with our current cultural moment or when we choose to not go to certain parties or do what everyone else seems to be doing. And of course, we know that in certain places in the world, it's very dangerous to be a Christian. It's even life-threatening. You can be arrested or beaten for being a Christian or even killed for being a Christian. Within just a few years of the writing of this letter, there would be a significant uptick in the number of Christians who would be killed for their faith because they refused to burn incense to the emperor. Peter clarifies, though, that not all suffering is righteous suffering. Remember that in this letter in 1 Peter 4, 15? He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Make sure that your suffering is just, that it's righteous suffering for following Jesus and not suffering that you brought on yourself because of your bad choices. Because of your sinful choices. But when we do suffer righteously as a Christian, when we suffer as a Christian for doing the right thing, we actually have reason to rejoice, Peter has shared with us. For when we suffer for following Jesus, Peter tells us we are actually blessed. In the midst of that suffering, we experience the blessing of God that sustains us and encourages us, buoys our spirits, gives us joy in the midst of suffering. That's how the apostles were able to sing in the midst of their prison cells, having been arrested for following Jesus. 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter 4, 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be as ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Suffering as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, is not cause for shame, but it is a cause for rejoicing. To glorify God's name. We're blessed when we suffer as Christians because this gives us greater assurance that we are truly Christians. That God dwells within us. Assurance that we are genuinely born again to a living hope. Why would we ever endure suffering for something we didn't really believe in? But when we endure suffering, it shows the genuineness of our faith in Jesus. And it gives us cause for greater assurance and therefore greater joy. So when we suffer willingly for following Jesus, it proves the genuineness of our faith and we are blessed, blessed of God. But take note here in chapter 5 and verse 10 that any suffering we experience in this life is always 
temporary suffering. It won't last forever. It's only for a little while. Just a few more weary days. Just a little bit longer. Peter began his letter with this same truth that our suffering is but for a little while. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, same word, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, just for a little while. And here at the close of this letter, he says it again. Our suffering is not forever. Praise God. Our joy will be, but our suffering is temporal. There's great encouragement for us in this promise. If we follow Jesus, we will suffer, but that suffering will not be forever. Ultimately, Peter's talking about the fact that one day we will go home to be with Jesus and all suffering will be done away with. All our suffering will be over. Sin, disease, sickness, pain, persecution, suffering, crying, and death will all be over and Jesus will wipe every tear from our eye. What a promise. What hope there is in this truth. Whenever I was going through maybe a difficult time or uh, trying to complete a course of study or something like that, I would call my parents and my dad would be on the other end and he would, he would encourage me and he, he would say, look, there's not much time left in the semester. Or you're almost there. And he would say this way, he would say, well, you can do that standing on your head. It's not much time left. It's short. Yes, the suffering is real. Yes, it really hurts, but it will not last forever. Compared to eternity and the eternal joy we will all share because of our faith in Jesus Christ and God's wonderful redemption, compared to that eternal joy, this time of suffering is the blink of an eye. It's short. Peter, in essence here, is saying, this too shall pass. It's going to pass. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Or as the parable Jesus told, the woman who feels the sorrow and pangs of childbirth quickly forgets them at the joy of seeing her newborn baby. So it is for us. We may suffer for a time in this life, but we can anticipate the joy that is soon to follow. Joy that will be absent any sorrow whatsoever. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's no contest. It's only for a little while. Second reason for gospel hope in the midst of our suffering. Not only is it short-lived, it's just for a little while. Secondly, our suffering is overseen by the God of all grace. We're not barreling out of control here in a life of suffering. No, our circumstances, even our suffering, are overseen by God, and He is a God of all grace. 
Look what he says, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ himself will perfect you. He's the God of all grace. And God himself is doing the work in us. Now what does it mean that our God is the God of all grace? Well, grace, of course, means undeserved favor, the undeserved blessing of God on our lives. That's his grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We couldn't earn it. There's no meriting it. It's simply God's gift to us where he blesses us despite our sin and rebellion against him. And notice it says he is the God of all grace. God has an unlimited storehouse of grace to bestow on you and I. God's grace is his promise to abundantly supply in us whatever is lacking and that which we could never supply in our own strength and our own effort. This is what he does for us. From the moment of our salvation on, God is continually supplying us with grace upon grace. Like the relentless waves in an ocean that just keep coming in. So God's grace just keeps washing over us. Supplying what we lack. So God in his grace treats us not as our sins deserve, but instead grants us forgiveness through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And as God's grace was so needed in order for us to become Christians, we continue to stand in need of God's grace to grow in him, to live for him, and to endure suffering for his sake. But the good news of the gospel of God's grace is that it's always there for us. It's always present. It's always in super abundant supply. He has more than enough grace to help us in our time of need. Remember when Paul was afflicted with that thorn in the flesh? Whatever it was, we can't really know for sure what it was. But it was some area of suffering in Paul's life. And three times Paul prayed for it to pass, for it to be removed Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. God didn't remove the suffering, but he supplied sufficient grace to help Paul endure the suffering, to benefit from the suffering spiritually, to grow him in Christ. Commenting on this truth that God is the God of all grace, again, Kelly says, the meaning is that God bestows help sufficient for every occasion and emergency. Sufficient. Grace. Sufficient for every occasion and emergency. There is nothing you're going to face but that God's grace is greater than your need. Because he's the God of all grace. Our momentary suffering is overseen by the God of all grace. And his grace is always sufficient to see us through. So be encouraged. God is at the helm. And he continually dispenses his grace to supply whatever it is we're lacking in whatever circumstance we face. Thirdly, 
our suffering is also set against the backdrop of our calling in Christ. Our suffering is set against the backdrop of our calling in Christ. Again, look with me at verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect you. Peter says that God is the God of all grace, and he is the one who's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Beloved, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is your destination. God's eternal glory in Christ. The end has already been determined, and your end is glory. It's by God's grace that we've been saved, not by our works, so that no one will boast. No one's ever saved by self-effort, self-improvement, self-righteousness. None of it. None of it will save us. Salvation has always and only been of God's grace, a gift from Him. A gift that we receive by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus, the God-man, the the Son of God who walked this earth and perfectly fulfilled God's holy standard of righteousness in the law. And because Jesus was God's Son and because He fulfilled all righteousness and fulfilled the law perfectly, could go to the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and I who have broken God's law in, in innumerable ways. Jesus died on the cross, a substitute for you and I. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave, showing that God was satisfied with the substitutionary sacrifice of his son. So that now all those who trust in Jesus alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins, receive it as a gift. Receive it by faith. See, we have nothing to boast in. When it comes to our salvation. The only thing we can boast in is God's grace. And Jesus finished work on the cross. On our behalf. We boast in God. His goodness and grace. We boast in Jesus. His perfect work of salvation. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. And our need of forgiveness. God supplies the rest by his grace. Because he's the God of all grace. Peter described our salvation early on in this letter in this way. In 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is this gracious salvation that is the result of His calling on our life. The effectual call of God into salvation. And this call of God into salvation includes being called to his eternal glory in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then know and rest in the truth that you've been called of God. And that this calling of God upon your life includes his calling unto glory. He didn't just call you for a couple of years. He didn't just call you for a a few events in your life. He called you unto glory in Christ. 
the completion of his saving work. Once you begin the journey of of following Jesus, which commences at the point of faith in, in Christ, it will come to conclusion, the conclusion God has designed and has called you to, which is his own glory in Christ Jesus. Now, our calling in Christ is a calling to share in both Christ's suffering and Christ's glory. Jesus, we know, experienced suffering in his life. He experienced tremendous suffering in his crucifixion and in his death. But this suffering was immediately followed by the glory of the resurrection and of his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus' suffering was followed by glory. The cross gave way to the crown. And so it is for us. The cross will give way to the crown. The life of suffering will give way to the life of glory. We suffer now, and that is part of our calling in Christ. Yes, that too is part of God's call on your life and mine. But rest assured, the suffering will give way to glory. The cross gives way to the crown. 1 Peter 4.13, look what Peter says there. 1 Peter 4.13, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... See, our identity as believers is union with Christ. We are spiritually united to him such that when Jesus died, it's as though we died with him. We share in his sufferings. And to the degree that we share in the sufferings of Christ, we keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice in exaltation. Do you see that? The pairing of suffering and glory, suffering and glory, suffering and glory. As it was true in Jesus' life, so it will be true for you because you are united in him. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, that is suffering, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering and glory. We can know with certainty that our calling in Christ is not only a call to suffer, but a call to glory in which we will share in the very glory of Christ. I don't even know what that means. I just know it's good news for you and I. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory in which we will share in the glory of Christ. Hmm. Glory that is to be revealed to us. Our, Our little while of suffering here and now must always be set against the backdrop of our calling unto his eternal glory in Christ. Short time of suffering, eternal glory. This is your calling. This is my calling as a believer. 
Yes, I have to go through the valley of suffering, but it always and inevitably leads to the finish line of glory because it's God's calling. Fourthly and finally, our suffering is accompanied by God's perfecting work. Be encouraged by the promise of God's perfecting work on your life. Peter assures his readers here, and all of us as Christians, that God is not done with us. That he has not abandoned us, and he never will. But he will finish what he has started, and he will bring us to full and final maturity in Christ. God will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Your life may seem a random assortment of various trials and sufferings that don't seem to produce anything of worth and value. You're wrong. If you're a Christian and you're called of God, then that calling includes suffering, yes, but that suffering is never random, it's never purposeless, it's never vindictive, it's never cruel. It always has a good purpose. It always has an end in mind, which is your maturity in Jesus Christ. These four verbs that Peter uses here are in the future indicative. They describe who we will one day be when God finally completes his work in us. This is the finish line. This is where we're all headed as believers in Jesus. And God is at work bringing that about and he will ensure that it happens for each and every one of us. Though these works are all in process now, they will all find their fulfillment and completion in the culmination and consummation of God's saving work when Jesus returns or when he calls us home. Peter has emphasized the fullness of God's grace and salvation which will only be fully realized at his return, at Jesus' return. 1 Peter 1.5, we are protected by the power of God through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The fullness and finality of our salvation has not come yet. We have been saved, right, at the moment of our salvation. We are being saved, and one day we will be finally and fully saved as God completes his perfect work of redemption in us. 1 Peter 1.13. Peter says, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's still yet future grace that will be ours. Redeeming grace. Perfecting grace. Maturing grace. That will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All four of these terms, notice the four terms there, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. 
All four of these terms are somewhat overlapping. We shouldn't necessarily think of them as distinct works that God is doing. I think they're intended to be considered together as a total picture of the completeness of God's saving work in us. The totality of what God will do. He'll do all these things and they, and they overlap one with each other. But it's given for emphasis to share with you the, the fullness of God's work that will be done in the end. I think it runs parallel to what Paul said in Romans 8 about the completeness of our salvation in Jesus. The unbreakable golden chain of redemption as it's called sometimes. Let me read it for you. Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what Peter's describing here. Final and full conformity to the image of God's son. Again, Romans 8, 29. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. There's our calling. And these whom he called, he also justified. That happens at the moment of our salvation when God declares us righteous in his sight through faith in his righteous son, Jesus Christ. Those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. Glorified. That means that any remaining sin in us will be done away with forever. And we will be complete in Christ. We will be mature like Christ. We'll be perfect like Him. Amazing. God Himself will see to it. God Himself will perfect. Make us complete and perfect so that we're in no way lacking. God himself will put things right in us and make us whole as God created us to be. We will be like Jesus in terms of perfection and maturity. He's also going to confirm us. That means strengthen us and make us unchangingly complete. God himself will also strengthen us. He'll make us strong. Our former weaknesses will all be done away with. Our former distractions and proneness to temptation and all of it will be done, will be strengthened. And finally, God himself will establish us, making us completely and irreversibly secure in him. No more slipping into sin. No more reason for regret and repentance. We will be once and for all established in following God and praising Him and honoring Him with our lives as we ought. And God Himself will do this perfecting work because He's the God of all grace. We couldn't do it ourselves. No self-help book will help you to do that. Only God can accomplish that. We simply receive it as a gift through faith in Christ. God himself will do this perfecting work in us. A work he has already begun. But which will be made perfect and complete when the time of our stay on this earth is over. And we return to our heavenly home. 
Philippians 1.6, Paul said it, right? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now I love how Peter ends this. Just thinking about this and, and writing it down moves Peter to praise, to doxology. He breaks forth into song. To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said? To God belongs both the power and the right to rule forever and ever. That's what the dominion means. That God has the power and the right to rule forever and ever, unceasingly. We can be sure God will make good on these promises. That these promises are ours and they will be perfectly fulfilled because he's the God of dominion. He's the God who rules. He's the authoritative one above whom there is no other. He has the power, the ability, the wisdom, and the right to do all that he has promised to do. Peter is moved to praise even as he was earlier in the letter In chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, you know how secure we are in Jesus Christ. The God who created all things, the God who rules over all things, the God with all power and all authority has called you by his grace, not just to temporal salvation, but to an eternal salvation that includes your final transformation into conformity, perfect conformity with his son, Jesus Christ. That's where we're all headed. Perfect maturity, perfect holiness, perfect submission. May the Lord make it so. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all authority and power. You not only promise things, you have the ability to make them so. And you could do no other. You are a God who cannot lie. And therefore, all your promises are true and they will be fulfilled in full. And that is such good news for us. We're so grateful that the promise you have made is not dependent on our ability. It's not conditioned on us in some way. But it is rooted and grounded in your eternal call upon our lives. An eternal call motivated by your abounding grace. And we can do nothing other than respond with gratefulness and praise to the one who rules over all. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.